0: Amen. Be seated, please. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Numbers chapter 2. For those visiting, I'm going to be reading in the ESV. And while you're turning, last week was uh, your chapter that got all the accountants and genealogists excited. And this week, we're going to be dealing with 2, 3, and 4, which will get all of your logistics people excited, your project managers As we have to navigate this. Now, um, some are familiar with this. I have a pattern of preaching. I preach through short book, short book, long book. Short book, short book, long book. So we're going to be handling numbers in roughly uh, 13 sermons. I can't remember exactly. I have it planned out. So we're going to be taking chunks. And as a result, we're going to deal with Numbers 2 through 4. Today, I'm not going to read all of Numbers 2 through 4. Uh, I'm comfortable doing that. Um, I have no problem reading 145 verses straight. I suspect that might tax you a little bit. Um, so we're going to read just snippets of each chapter. I should hopefully be able to direct you well as to where we're going. So we're going to start Numbers chapter 2, verse 1 you're going to notice this chapter is a pattern, which is why I'm uh, reading the first one and a half cycles of it. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp, facing the tent of meeting on every side." Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab. His company is listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, and the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar, his company as listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Helon, his company as listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Eliezer, the son of Sheduer. His company is listed being 46,500. Flip over a page, most likely to Numbers chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 40. Numbers chapter 3, verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel, from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males according to the number of names from a month old and upward as listed were 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord." And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 gerahs, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, by shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying... Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of all of blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, the flagons for the drink offering, and the regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet, and cover them with a covering of goatskin, and all shall put in its and sorry, and shall put in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. And they shall put it with all its utensils and a covering of goat skin and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goat skin and shall put in its poles." Let's pray. That's where I'm going to stop. And Lord, we do thank you for your word. And as with all of these difficult type passages, we thank you for passages that um, show us our need for your spirit. And we ask that he would be pleased to speak, that uh, we would listen. For Christ's sake, amen. The older I get the more I see the value in learning skills prior to the moment that you need them. Learning how to change a tire prior to the moment that you get a flat in downtown Atlanta, driving on the connector with nine million cars behind you. Learning how to do your taxes prior to... To the second week of April, you're not exactly sure when in that week it is, but you know that at some point there's a date coming up very quickly. Learning how to change a diaper prior to coming home from the hospital. It's one of my favorite hospital visits ever. I went to visit a family, just had a brand new baby, little baby, right? Brand new. Uh, just a couple of days old and they had just had to change the diaper for one of the first times without the nurses being there or whatever and changed a little man's diaper and then didn't know what to do with them. And I was like, well, you should swaddle him, like wrap him up. They were like, I don't know how to do that okay, great. I'm a pastoring. I teach the Bible. I'm going to teach you how to wrap up your kid. This is how you wrap up your kid. One of those things that's really helpful to know before you get home from the hospital. The, the interesting thing, though, is I've found that uh, this is no less true for spiritual truths as well as just these kind of necessity of life things. It's really helpful <laughs> to learn the spiritual truth prior to the moment when you need it. Uh, put differently, if you wait till you're in the hospital to try to learn it, that's really hard. If you wait till you're in hospice to try to learn about heaven, that's really hard. Now, granted, you're really motivated, you have all of the incentive that you would need, but you oftentimes don't have the emotional bandwidth to do it. So it's helpful to learn these lessons prior to. That's why we have passages like this to help kind of reinforce in our minds some of the basic truths that God has been saying. You find that He tells the same story over and over and over and over and over in His Scriptures to remind us of who He is and what He's doing. Now, already you're, some of you are going, really, I'm not really sold on this sermon already. I mean, those passages, they're, they're not the kind I enjoy. I don't read these and memorize them. It's not where I do my devotions the most regularly. My default passages when I'm having a hard day, not Numbers 4. And I would say that's true for me as well, actually. But I suspect, as I mentioned last week, part of this is maybe a little bit of a flaw in how many of us read the Bible. We read the Bible with the hero and villain motif. Who are the heroes that I can copy, and who are the villains that I should not? We look for examples. We, we tend to thrive well with copying somebody and living like them. Well, the problem with that uh, is that it, it severely limits how we see a text. It also severely limits how interesting we can find it, particularly when there's not that many people in it doing anything, when it's a list of numbers and things like that, we struggle immensely and struggle particularly to see Jesus. And part of that is, and what I'm challenging last week and challenging this week, and we'll challenge often through the book of Numbers, is to try to, to work past maybe just uh, the heroes and villains motif, to look at that question, what is God doing? So, our mission today, hopefully we choose to accept it, we'll be looking at Numbers 2, 3, and 4 to see What is our God doing in this book? Well, Numbers chapter 2 starts out with our most gripping part of the passage, uh, a logistics list. Some of you have done this professionally. It's just organizing people. It's uh, getting them to stand. In fact, actually, it probably more closely lines with our military parades. Getting right people to stand in the right place at the right time. It's all about people moving which again, for many of us, is why our ears kind of cut out, but we're missing an important point. What's happening in the beginning of Numbers 2 is God is already explaining to his people, look, you're in Sinai currently. You're out in the wilderness. You're out in the middle of nowhere, separated from everyone and everything except for God himself. He's been dwelling on a mountain. Now he's dwelling in his house of meeting and has been conversing with his people teaching them who he is teaching them what they should believe teaching them how they should obey but he's been very upfront they're not going to stay there forever in fact right now at this point in the story they're just campers they're pilgrims they're on an extended camping trip that's going to turn into a military conquest and god is beginning to organize the conquest now, that's what Numbers chapter 2 is, is he's logistically arranging everybody for how this camp of roughly two and a half million people will traverse the desert until they're able to invade the promised land. Now, the interesting thing is really how he arranges them. We read just the first part, but it's arranged on a north-south for you, east-west. Got that right? Backwards, I think. Arrangement of the tribes. Three on each side with the three most important in the front, the three kind of least important on the top, and kind of working around in a circle so that you have uh, the tribe of Judah in the center really at the, the functionally at the gate, uh, the entrance to the tent of meeting where you work down to the south where there's three tribes, tribes that were produced from the concubines and servants and cursed tribes. Uh, Reuben's tribe is there. That's the one we read. We move around to the west uh, where you have, uh, at this point, not Rachel, only the other sisters, sons, and then to the north, again, with the concubines. We have all 12 tribes laid out in a grid. Three, 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 and three. A perfect square, 12 tribes, three per side. Now, interestingly, inside that square is something significant, that the very center is that God had laid out a plan where whenever they traveled, wherever they went, whatever journey they went on, whichever battle they had to fight, the Lord himself would dwell in the midst of them. So you had three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes. But in the very center, there weren't tribes. There was God's house. Because even in his geography lesson, he was teaching them that no matter where we travel, that no matter where we go, if you are in what we would find eventually in Christ, if you were a child of God, he always goes with you. He's in the midst of his people. He lives there with them. He dwells right there with them in the center. Kind of, again, is an object lesson for all of Israel that no matter where they went or what they did, God was to be the the middle, the center, the focus of everything that they did. Now, geographically, there was one other kind of really significant point that we haven't talked about yet. You had three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes with the the, the tabernacle in the middle, but there was something in between them. You see, this is the thing that we kind of oftentimes forget as New Testament Christians. Uh, Because God has uh, spent all of his wrath on Jesus, we know there's only affection for us. Uh, Many of us incorrectly presume that he's safe. Many of us kind of incorrectly presume that he's like that really kind of uh, sweet and friendly grandfatherly gentleman, you know, that always gives an encouragement and kind of, you know, ruffles your hair a little bit and, you know, gives you that little bit of, you know, pick-me-up that you need through the day. We have forgotten that the primary kind of starting point of the entirety of the Old Testament is to showcase that God is big, He is mighty, he's powerful, and he is tremendously scary. It's going to kind of be the backdrop for when Christ shows up. And they actually have this established in the geography of how Israel was laid out. You had God in the middle, you had his people around the outside, but something always had to be in between, which is where the priests lived. You had the priests that lived. In fact, actually, there are three tribes of priests that live on the north side, the west side, and the south side. But in the the very entrance to the Tent of Meeting, it's where Aaron and his family lived. Those that would handle the Most Holy, but their job as priest was to be the buffer between God and man. In fact, your English language doesn't tend to translate it very well because in the Hebrew, the, the idea of their service Uh, It had the idea of that they were guards, and one of their primary tasks was to kill anybody that tried to get into the tabernacle. You see, God's presence was so real. God's presence was so localized. God's presence was so incredibly with them that you couldn't just go running through the building. Can you imagine that? Your young parent maybe lost a little control of your five-year-old, it happens. Five-year-old's being exceptionally naughty and takes off for the tabernacle. What a bad day to be a priest because what's their job is to stop the kid and if they can't, they have to kill him first because God's presence was so holy, so real, so present. That is a life and death matter. And you see, the problem here is, again, you already get to see, is that many of us are going, well, I, I wish it were like that today in some sense because they could see it at least, right? They could go see the house and know, well, our God is there. I know He's, I know he's with us because we can see where He lives. But today, I, I can't see My eyes aren't attuned to those sorts of things. But friends, what this is doing is it's preparing us for the arrival of Jesus Christ. I suspect this is one of the chapters that John has in mind when he began to write his gospel. It's where John chapter 1 begins. In the beginning was the Word, Word was God, the Word was with God. He worked through And he tabernacled among us, he dwelt among us, he lived among us, he is human. Christ has put on humanity. What's happening here again is this idea that's introduced in Numbers chapter 2, that no matter where God's people go, that no matter what difficulty God's people have, that no matter what sort of conflict they have, no matter what sort of turmoil they have, no matter where they're taken in their journey, that their God goes with them. That idea is introduced, but it doesn't come to its full realization until the New Testament where Jesus steps inside and says, I'm going to become man, and I'll never stop being human ever again. You can never say your God has left you or forsaken you. He's human even now. In fact, actually, he would go so far as to promise that. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You will be joined with me, united with me for all time, and even after time ceases to exist. You see, this is one of those ideas that the Scriptures teach with great regularity that my God will never leave me. The problem is, is for many of us, because of the weakness of our faith, this is one of those ideas that we keep kind of intellectually, and then the moment that we hit hard times, we realize it's never really quite percolated down into our hearts, And we hit the hard times when we go. Well, does God really love me? Whew, this hurts so bad. Is, is is God really here? I feel so alone. Surely He's left me. It can't hurt this bad. If God is here, can it? and it's interesting, what's he saying from the very beginning? No, I'm with you. I haven't left you. I don't do that to my people. I'm with them always, no matter where they go, no matter what they do. Friends, do you realize that even when you go and do the most horrible things, the most wretched sins that you ever do, he's there with you, watching you? He hasn't left you when you're sinning. He's the one keeping your heart beating. He's the one giving you the life that you're then using to sin against him. He doesn't leave you. That's not how our God works. But again, what a lesson to learn in the good times, so that when the bad times follow, we are equipped to handle the difficulty. A traveling people with their God in their midst, a guarded buffer protecting them from Him and Him from them, all preparing us. For the arrival of Christ Jesus, all preparing us for the God who uh, would become man, stay God, but become fully man, live in our midst, and be our Redeemer. The section doesn't stop with that theme introduced that God doesn't leave us, that God doesn't forsake us, but then immediately kind of puts it into practice Numbers chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, didn't read them, but here we begin to see our second theme for the day, is that if God lives in the midst of His people, His presence kind of necessitates, it, it provides for, it requires and accomplishes necessary service and obedience. You see, what's happened is God has laid out for them that when they travel, they travel three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes with the house in the middle. This house, though, (laughs) however, is exceptionally complicated. It's effectively a traveling castle in some sense, right? You think about the biggest circus tent that you've ever seen. Maybe you went to like Cirque du Soleil or something like that and think, no, those are impressive in their height. This was impressive in its glory, posts and skins, animal skins. I love how the ESV highlights that one of them, we don't know what it is. It might have actually been dolphin skins. We're not entirely sure, with gold everywhere and lights and smells and beauty and brilliance. And what happens is that God says that if I am in your midst and you are my people, That is to produce a change in you, an obedience and a service, a devotion and a fulfillment. Chapter 3 begins with explaining who Aaron's sons are. These are the priests, but not just all of the priests, the Levites, but a very specific family, the Aaronic priesthood within. He has four kids, or did at this point, Uh, Two of them died on their ordination day, the day that they were installed to be priests of the Most High. They, I suspect, my reading uh, is they got too excited. They didn't follow the directions they were supposed to do, and God killed them on the day they were ordained with fire off of the altar. So he's left with two, Eleazar and Ithamar. And Aaron with his two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, are in charge of organizing the entirety of, of the priesthood for the moving of this mighty castle every time they traveled. I mean, can you imagine the logistics of moving? I mean, think about just if we had to, like, move this building. Now, granted, this one's made to be a bit more permanent. We did test that in the wind early on. I think it'll make it this time, but can you imagine that every time you have to, like, well, okay, We've got to move our families, and you've got to move your family, and I've got to move my family, but together we've got to pick up and move the church building every time we go. And oh yeah, like a substantial portion of it's made out of solid gold. That's a trick. And oh yeah, by the way, if you touch it, you die. Eh, kind of important to note as well. But interestingly, how God builds it into the very kind of fiber of what's happening is that immediately, if he's going to be with us, he's going to use us. He's going to put us into his service. He's going to value. You have ministers there in verse 7. These are the, the men that are serving in front of the tabernacle, taking care of it, watching over it, guarding it, and keeping it. Again, you have verse 10, putting to death anyone that comes near, an outsider or even an Israelite. He's teaching his people the value of obedience in that connection with his presence. Now, I want you to understand this. We do not obey, and then God loves us. That is not how it works. That is called a false gospel, and that is wrong. It is not, I obey, I am a good person, and then God loves me. That's evil. Don't believe that. That's a lie from hell. However, if you reverse the order, God loves me, and therefore I'm going to obey, you get a really rich and robust faith out of that. The Lord loves me, and he takes care of me. He keeps all of those promises that were introduced in Numbers chapter 2. Therefore, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to devote my life to fulfilling his commands and keeping them. He's teaching his people already just the value of obedience, that to be in the presence of God is to be called to obey Him. Now, hear that again. To be in the presence of God means to be called to obey Him. And I might, again, challenge for some of us the kind of broadly evangelical background that some of us have grown up in, where we were taught that Christianity exists for my experience We were taught that Christianity exists primarily for my emotions. It's a form of therapy that helps me make it through my week. I, I I don't make it through my week if I'm not in Christ, if I'm not in worship, if I'm not in prayer meeting. And I love all of those ideas. I agree with all of them. But it's so far down the list in terms of I'm in Christ so that I will obey. So that I will live according to his law. Many of us, you remember that Ephesians 2 passage that you love so much where it lays out the beauty of the gospel so clearly. You're not saved by works so that no one can boast. But then what's the next sentence that he immediately turns to? So that you will do the works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. It's, it's the consequence of being in the presence of God that if you, if you know God and if you love God and if you've been transformed by God and changed by God, you are to obey Him. I mean, it is amazing how easy it is for us to stop talking about obedience. Friends, I'll say it just kind of bluntly. Obedience is not, it's not up for negotiation. I mean, we read those chapters in Romans where they're like, well, I'll send more so that grace will abound and go, Pfft. well, nobody actually says that. But then in our own heads we'll think, well, I man, I don't have to obey. I'm forgiven. That's literally what the Bible's talking about. What's challenged, what was presented as a challenge to us here, is to recognize that if we're in Christ, if we've been changed and transformed, the natural byproduct is obedience. It's service. It's doing what God has called us to do. In fact, Paul will refer to this in Romans as what we're called to be slaves of righteousness. Now, again, this is such a, a different way than many of us think about our lives. We don't think that I'm a slave. I've been purchased with a price, the price of the blood of Christ. And as a result, I do not have access to my own mind, my own will anymore. I don't, I don't get the freedom to make my own life my own. I belong to Jesus, and my life is to be devoted to Him. My thoughts are to be devoted to Him. My hands are to be devoted to Him. My heart is to be devoted to Him. I don't get the privilege to say no if I'm in Jesus. And there's forgiveness when I fail, but there's no part of my life that's supposed to be kept away from Him. I am His slave. I belong to Him. Now, immediately, if we're kind of thinking through this, some of us might say, well, I don't think that's fair. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's fair that God would have that ability to tell me what to do, that I have to live a certain way. Well, uh, honestly, we only think that. We never say it to his face. No one ever says that to his face. But interestingly, I think he explains that actually fairly well in this chapter, right? So at chapter 2, He lays out for them how they're going to travel. Doesn't give it up for negotiation. These are the way the 12 tribes are going to organize. God in the middle of them, the Levites surrounding him. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3, he then immediately says, and oh yeah, by the way, sons of Aaron and Levites in general, you're going to have to work. You don't really have an option. If you're going to be a part of God's family, be a part of God's kingdom, if you're going to be a part of Israel, you will work. You will serve, not up for negotiation but 11, he tells us why. Why is it that he can say to his people in such a fashion, you have to obey? Well, specifically here to the Levites, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israelite, uh, people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. Well, on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So he's reminding them that tenth plague in Egypt, that awful, awful plague uh, where, you know, Israel goes in for the Passover. They put the lamb's blood on the doorframe, and the Lord sends his, sends his avenger through Egypt and he kills all of the firstborn of every family in Egypt and every animal in Egypt. All of the firstborn die. And God says, you know what? You should have died too, but the fact that you didn't die is because of my mercy. And as a result, you belong to me. All of those children, those firstborn are mine. I I purchased them with the blood of a lamb. They're mine. I own them. And as a result, you don't get to do with them what you wish. Now, uh, he can either claim those firstborn one of two ways. He can either claim the firstborn of every family in Israel. All of the firstborn would belong to him, Or, what he says here instead is, rather than taking one from every family, he's just going to take all of the Levites. They're his. He's purchased them by the blood of the Egyptians. They belong to him. And in fact, actually, that latter part that we read there in uh, verses 40 to the end of the chapter, that's what they're doing is, they're actually, (laughs) the numbers didn't quite line up there had been twenty-two thousand two hundred seventy-three firstborn Israelites since they had left Egypt, but there are only two hundred—I uh, mean, twenty-two thousand uh, Levites. So there's, the, the gap was two hundred seventy-three off. So they literally had to buy them out; they had to purchase them, like you would literally buy a slave. And I know that's incredibly uncouth to say in our current kind of cultural moment, but that's God, what God's doing. He's purchased his slaves. Slaves of righteousness, purchased them first by the blood of the Egyptians, purchased them in this chapter, secondly by the coin, all pointing to a greater one, right? The one who would purchase them with his own blood and would lead them to be slaves of righteousness and freedom and joy and gladness with the Spirit of God transforming. You see, this is The part that a lot of times we emotionally kind of like to pack away and not think about, particularly when we're going to do active sin, right? When you know you're doing the thing that's wrong, when in your heart you have that kind of that tingling at the back of your brain where you're like, I know this is wrong, but it just feels so good right now. Right? I'm going to be angry, or I'm going to be jealous, or I'm going to be, you know, whatever I'm going to be. We think that we're allowed to do that in the moment because we think we're entitled to the freedom to disobey. the reality of the matter is interestingly, God's purchased you. He's bought you with a price. The price is the blood of Christ. And when you sin in such a way, when I sin in such a way, we're dishonoring the blood that was shed on our behalf. And again, it's interesting, he doesn't mean he wouldn't, he knew it when he went to the cross. It doesn't mean that it's any less effective. It doesn't mean that it's any less real. It does mean, however, that our hearts are dishonoring God in a way that's sad and grievous. The interesting thing, how this section kind of ends, and you can see there's a bit of a logical flow here, at least hopefully in the sermon, God's dwelling in the midst of his people. The consequence of him dwelling in the midst of his people is that they have to obey, they have to serve him. If they want to grumble against that, the reason why he's allowed to do that is because he's literally purchased them, he owns them, he bought them. And the consequence of this I think is very interesting. Numbers 3 verses 14 through 39 and then the entire chapter of Numbers 4 is that the Lord is the one who gets to determine your usefulness. Right? He, he is the one who gets to determine your usefulness to His kingdom. And th- this is an important reality is that all of us, at least most of us, okay, maybe some of us, are uh, kind of filled with self enough that we want to be the hero in the story. And that's why many of us love those sort of action movies, or we love the comic book movies, or we love the books that kind of inspire us because there's some sense in which we can kind of feel for just a little bit like we're a hero. Maybe that doesn't match our daily life. Maybe it does match how we think about ourselves on our daily lives. But for just a brief moment, we get to feel like we're a hero. Because we want to feel like we're special and we want to feel like we're important. And the interesting thing here is that God is saying, you're important because I'm here. You're special because I'm here. You're a hero in some sense because I'm here. It has nothing to do with your gifting. It has nothing to do, actually, with your service. God's affection has to do everything with His presence. <laughs> Remember that the ordering of the chart. Your obedience is not what creates value in love. His love is what creates value. It's what creates obedience. What happens in Numbers chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 in Numbers chapter 4 is that He begins to lay out how God's people are going to serve him. And the interesting thing is, is the first thing that determines your usefulness in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with what you want to do. He doesn't factor in, I'd like to serve in this way. The first thing that he values for how you serve in his church at this point in history is who your parents are who's your genealogy? Who's your grandpa? Who's your great-grandpa? Who's your great-grandpa? Are you from the Levites or are you not? And then if you are Levitical, are you from Aaron? Are you from Kohath? Are you from, who's your family lineage? It's interesting, his sole determination at first for how you serve is just your family heritage. It has nothing to do with gifting, has nothing to do with desire and, weirdly enough, has nothing to do with ability. And I suspect this might actually, again, be a little bit of a, a healthy corrective for us today. So much of our church service is motivated by our desire to, in some sense, and I'm going to be a bit just blunt, in some sense by our desire to be the hero, and to do what makes us feel good and makes us feel valuable. And the interesting thing is when it comes time for, weirdly enough, the priests to work, it has nothing to do with their abilities. It has everything to do at first with their family heritage. The second thing that then gets introduced, again, nothing to do with desire. Nothing to do with how they want to serve. Verse, chapter 4, verse 3, their age. So if you're from the tribe of Levi and you're from the age of 30 to 50 years old, you were immediately conscripted into service unless you had kind of like a genetic deformity that would rule you as unclean. If you had like a, a you know, hand that would, was deformed or something you couldn't serve because you were unclean, you, you automatically went into service, whether you liked it or not, had nothing to do with your desire, had everything to do with God deciding how his people would function. So all men from 30 to 50, if you were from the tribe of Levi, unless you had some sort of deformity that ruled you out of Christian service, you obeyed in these ways. And the tribes did not have all the same task. Aaron and his sons packed up all of the most holy things. They were the only ones that were allowed to see the Ark of the Covenant They were the only ones that were allowed to see the stuff that was behind the curtain that blocked everything off. The Kohathites were the ones that carried um, all of the important things. And the other two tribes, Gershon and the Merari, um, they carried all the heavy things. (laughs) They were basically just the, the, the pack mules, really. They had wagons that they carried all of the heavy things in, but all of the important things were handled and packed by Aaron and his sons, and then the important things were carried by the Kohathites. And if you wanted to kind of feel special, guess what? It had nothing to do with what you got to do, whether you were born into that family or not. Why talk about this? I suspect, and just very briefly, the strengths and weaknesses of a church usually, and I don't mean like an independent, like individual, like congregation like us, I mean like an era of the church. The strengths and weaknesses of an era of the church usually are not visible during that era they're visible years removed. And so it's easier for us to look back on the saints 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and to be critical of them because we can see their failures, but we cannot see our own. So that it's easy for us to look back at our roots as a Southern Presbyterian denomination and say, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, we really got it wrong. Like, we really got it wrong. When Girodo brought a slate full of elders to be ordained, African-American elders to be ordained, uh, they should have ordained them. They're good men qualified. They should have ordained them. We didn't do it. We we botched it. And it's easy for us to be critical of them. I suspect, humbly, I suspect that in 200 years from now, when they're looking back on the American Christianity movement and this time, the thing they're going to be able to say is, that was a generation or series of generations of people that loved themselves so much it poisoned their understanding of the Bible. It, it, generation after generation after generation of people that are just in love with ourselves. And the problem is, is I would love to say that, oh, I'm, that's not me. That's not me. I don't, I don't do that. I was reading a news article the other week that was uh, super alarmist and trying to scare everybody. and made me laugh. But the argument was, in essence, that basically all of us uh, eat every week um, the amount of plastic equivalent of like two matchboxes or something because it's just in the water and it's in the food and it's in the air. And we just make so much plastic and it breaks down to small particles that we just, we just consume it all of the time. And it'd be funny if you were to be like, well, I don't do that. I don't don't consume any. I I don't do that. Friend, it's in the water. Did you stop drinking last week? I don't do that. What's in the food? Did you stop eating last week? You you can't separate yourself that easily from the culture in which you live. And I would end simply with this kind of maybe point for us all to consider. You see, all of these things are a, a logical flow from each other. That if God is with us, I'm obligated to serve him. And that's a reasonable thing because he owns me as his servant, as his slave. And he's the one who gets to tell me what to do, not me. And again, that's his decision, not mine. And it's my job to try to kind of bring my emotions, to bring my heart, to bring my will in line with his word. It might benefit us, again, humbly if we just spend a little bit of time actually opening our mind to the possibility that we might actually be filled with self. And that the reason why we're actually aggravated with everybody else is because we're just being selfish. Right, I mean, let's be honest. 98% of the time you're aggravated with somebody else is just because you're being selfish. I'm not saying they're not being knuckleheads in their own right, but I'm saying your aggravation is your selfishness. Not all the time, but most of the time. But the interesting thing is how willing, unwilling we are to even consider it. And the sad thing is, is while all of this is kind of being hinted at and laid out in these three chapters of Numbers, it's all being kind of foreshadowed, to pointing to Christ. But now we have Christ, and we have His Spirit. And yet, perhaps we maybe want to cling to self instead. Maybe, even today... The Lord uses His word to kind of convict us just a little bit and show us some of our sin that maybe we could confess it and seek um, reconciliation with the Lord and obedience to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you that there are easy passages that stir our souls so easily. We can go to the Gospels and read of the crucifixion and the resurrection and it. Uh, takes our heart to the depths of the earth or to the heights of heaven. We also thank you that we have passages like this that stretch our minds and force us to contemplate the things that we don't normally contemplate. And we thank you that Isaiah 55 tells us that your word is always perfect, and the Timothys tell us that it's always yours. Would you use it in our hearts even now? For Christ's sake, amen.